Hi everybody, this is Derek. Um, welcome to Evil Chat number four. We're going to talk a little bit about good coaching, what it means, uh, particularly in the developmental realm, but also in high performance and elite. I'm going to talk about some definitions of that. Uh, might sound boring, but uh, I actually think it's a pretty good discussion. So, But before I get into it, I just want to go over a few things. And I'm going to keep this really short. So first of all, um, thanks for all the feedback again. It's uh, really helpful. I really appreciate it. Uh, working on a bunch of things here to make this better. And uh, I think, uh, I, I think it is getting better and I think it's, uh, it's going to be something you're going to really enjoy. Uh, the conversations with Stu are really good. I'm not going to put them out all in a row. I'm going to sort of drip those out in between, uh, some of these types of podcasts where I talk shorter ones where I talk about different issues and some other interviews and things like that. I got some interesting interviews coming up and I'm getting a lot of questions about certain topics. So I think I'm going to do uh, a podcast, maybe with Stu, maybe without, maybe both with uh, just, just answering questions that people have, which I, which I think would be really interesting. So it's like a, almost like a phone in show, you know, the old school phone in question shows you used to hear on the radio, people, phone in and ask questions well here you can email me at eviltrack at me.com uh, with your questions and we'll do our best to get on it and answer it I think that would be kind of cool as well as far as the technical issues go sound issues I think I've resolved them all now um, this is the first one you will hear that has the new setup and I think it should be loud enough for everybody. Um, if it isn't, please let me know. Uh, but when you do let me know, let me know what you're listening on because that kind of makes a difference. But as I said, I'm going to try to make it, uh, loud enough, good enough, high enough quality, no matter what you're listening on, but it does make a difference. So let me know that. So. All right. Okay. Oh, and last thing, uh, I'm going to try to talk a little less, <laughs> but, uh, hey, what the hell? Uh, I enjoy talking and, uh, you know, you're gonna have to put up with me a little bit on this. So in the uh, chats with Stu, you know, they get quite lengthy and involved and we kind of forget we're being recorded. And so we kind of, you know, just go off, but that's, you know, that's the point of the long, uh, the long form podcast, right? So, that's what we're going to do, and uh, we're both really enjoying The second one is really good. I really enjoyed our, our discussions. That's going to be coming up next after this one. So, And I'm going to try to release these on Sunday nights now. So if you notice, there was a break between uh, podcast number three, uh, which was Stu, and this one. That's because I just wanted to wait till the following Sunday to get it out. So, All right, so Sunday nights is when they're going to come out, hopefully, uh, or somewhere around there. Yeah, and that's it. So uh, I think we can probably, let's start to get into it now. When I was a young coach uh, working at the Kamloops Club, uh, in my first few years there, I went to a clinic uh, that was held in Puerto Rico uh, by NACAC, Victor Lopez's uh, group, uh, the NACAC um, coach development uh, organization that he headed up, or I think he was actually head of the entire NACAC. Anyways, he... Um, uh, they hosted this throws clinic. It was a weekend long throws clinic. Uh, and the instructors were Don Babbitt, uh, the, the great American throws coach, 
Um, and the East German throws coach, Eckhard Arbeit, who has a very notorious history, of course, um, but is a very interesting, uh, warm and uh, accessible man. He was, I found him to be just fantastic. He's a fantastic presenter. He was really, really good. And I got a ton out of that clinic and he was very uh very open and very welcoming and uh very good to everybody there uh, as was don don was fantastic and of course anybody in the throws knows uh that don is pretty much the best throws presenter uh in the world uh him and vsd and i'd say were are the two there but anyways eckert um eckert was really interesting and he, there's one thing he said in that clinic that not only do I remember it, but it really had an impact on how I thought about youth development coaching. And he said this, he was in the middle of one of his lectures talking about the importance of youth development. And he said, you know, in East Germany, we never put our best throws coaches or our best, actually he said our best coaches. We never put our best coaches with the high performance or elite athletes. We put our best coaches with the youth development athletes. And he went on to say that that was because, you know, that period is so important in terms of, you know, what happens at the high performance and elite levels that they felt that, you know, the, the, the coaches that were the you know, the best coaches, quote unquote, however you define that, um, needed to be at that level to prepare the athletes properly for what was going to come down the road. And of course, in that system, nobody, nobody carved their own path. So everybody fell into the system, quote unquote, uh, you know, whether that's a good or bad thing, uh, it doesn't really matter for this story, but that comment stuck with me for so long. And I was probably in my third year of professional coaching and it really helped to drive the way I thought about it and so I you know I was already taking my job quite seriously of course but it really helped me to really think about how I did things and do things properly as opposed to you know just just you know go after results uh, by whatever means uh, necessary let's say and I I really started to think about back then, you know, what it meant to be a development coach and what the purpose of it was. And then, of course, the other big event or thing that was going on in my life at that time was I had started to go down to uh, visit Dan Paff in Texas. He was recruiting my first uh, big stud athlete, Shane Nemi, who eventually never went to the University of Texas, but um, that led to me getting to know Dan. Um, um, funny story about that actually when he was trying to get a hold of me to talk to me about Shane coming down uh we and I counted this <laughs> we left we went back and forth with phone messages because we kept missing each other 43 times and eventually got a hold of each other and you know that led to uh the mentorship and friendship and uh to this day is one of the uh, most important people in my life but he um that I would, I made four different, as I said earlier in one of the other podcasts, I think it was with Stu, I made four different pilgrimages 
down to Austin to visit Dan and hang out. And that was important because, uh, you know, I had had this uh, developing sense of what is right and wrong in terms of putting together programs for youth development athletes at the time. But also I was getting this picture in my head from these trips to go see Dan about what elite coaching was because at the time, um, Donovan Bailey, uh, Bruni Surin, uh, Obadelli Thompson, all these great athletes were training down there. So I was able to go down there and, and, you know, get a picture of what they were going to do or what they were doing and what, you know, the athletes, hopefully that I was preparing the type of work I was preparing them for, because I think that's super important. I say that all the time when I lecture on youth development, that you, you really need to, to, get a chance to watch or study or understand what goes on at the highest levels in terms of the intensification that goes on because that's what you're preparing youth athletes for if they if they have talent and if they have enough talent to make it into that you know those environments later on then you need to prepare them for that because that's super important and of course preparing them for it is different than watching what goes on at that level and then going back home to your environment and trying to do the same thing. And essentially that's what this podcast is going to be about. How do we define that? I'm not going to get into the details of what to do in everything because that's way beyond the scope of this, but I'm going to talk about what it means to be a development coach and what are some of the measures that we should be using in order to define uh, success at that level. So that's what this is going to be about. I talked in podcast two about my mentors and you know, living up to their uh, achievements and that. And um, so you would probably think that my heroes in coaching are those coaches, you know, the ones that, I, that I've worked with and collaborated with uh, over the years that have produced all these uh, great accomplishments. But really, they're not. And I'm not saying what I'm about to say to blow up or stroke uh, developmental coaches uh, because there's no doubt that, uh, you know, at least where I come from, the developmental coaching situation needs to be uh, supported much better than it is in terms of uh, coaching education and and what they do and things like that. But um, my heroes are really the mom and pop organizations or teams that put together these youth development environments, clubs, um, schools, high school programs, decade after decade, year after year, decade after decade, where they are just, you know, for solely for the love of the sport, they're putting together programs that, um, you know, are really making a difference in, uh, in not only athletes lives, but for the sport. And that may all sound very nice. And, you know, like a big cliche, you hear that all the time, but it's, it's true, you know, but I also hold them to a much higher standard than I think most people do in development coaching. I think that, you know, just saying you're a volunteer is not enough. You, if you are going to be working with, um, athletes at that level because the importance of that uh, period along the developmental continuum I think that you know and I'm talking about from the start of formal training we'll get into that in a minute uh, up until the entry of high performance I think that you know you really need to 
study a bit anyways and think about what you need to be doing at that level because it's really important um, that you get it right for a lot of athletes. So anyway, so my, my heroes there are those, those coaches that, uh, you know, that are doing that. In fact, I talked a little bit about questions coming in uh, at, at the intro to this. And one of them is from a, a, a coach I know back home who, who was, who was a coach on teams back when I was a young athlete. He was always one of the team coaches and some of the regional teams that I would make. And, uh, you know, I mean, I really looked up to this guy and I still do to this day. And I lost, I lost touch with him for decades. And, and he showed up to, uh, one of my conferences in Vancouver a couple of years ago. And now he, he's, uh, he, he, he's still educating himself. He's, he's taking courses on the website. He listens to this podcast and he sent me an email the other day asking a bunch of questions. I mean, this guy's still right into it. I mean, I just, you know, I mean, you know, what is the value of someone like that to a community where this guy produced an Olympian from a very small, small, isolated town on the coast of British Columbia. And I know for a fact back then they did not have a track. So this woman, Connie Pullman, too, and her name was, made the 84 Olympic team um, and uh, was one of the top heptathletes uh, in, in Canada. And, um, you know, she trained on a, on a high school grass field and in a gym and all of that. It's where she did all of her training. So what is the value of someone like that to a community like that and who puts that much time in, you know, decade after decade after decade? Anyways, those are the ones I look up to, truly. So to me, this brings up an interesting question. How do we define good coaching at each level? And, you know, what do the, what do the various levels of coaching look like? How do we evaluate them? It's important because how we define good coaching tends to be how we evaluate good coaching. And there's a number of ways that we tend to value coaching in sport culture, I guess you would call it. Um, and I'll just quickly go through a couple of them, but I think there's one that we don't use enough in terms of when we're evaluating coaches, particularly at the developmental level. So the the first one is obviously it's success or by success, I mean results. Okay. Like results are important at every level. There's no doubt about it. And I, you know, I'm as competitive as anybody. Uh, so that's not a problem to me, evaluating a coach, uh, a coach's work based on their results, where it becomes a problem is when it's only results that you evaluate them on. And that tends to be, uh, results tend to be the biggest one far and away that we evaluate coaches on. But yeah, I'm competitive. And you know, a funny story on that, when I was in um, uh, university, uh, you Americans call it college, but uh, when I was in university uh, and I was training at a high performance center in Toronto, I, uh, I applied for a job once at this very fancy kind of hoity-toity uh, downtown private elementary school. And, uh, you know, it's one of these schools where they took an old heritage home and renovated it. And, you know, it was this really, it was a really neat little place. It was really cool. And I, I, I got the job. But during the job interview, 
um, I went in there and I was uh, meeting with the director of the school. The school was named after her. Her name was Jerry. I forget her last name, but I'm sitting there and um, we're talking about, uh, you know, the program and that. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> in the middle of this interview, someone knocks on the door and this guy sticks his head. And he's a parent of one of the kids in the school. And he's like, hey, Jerry, I, uh, hey, listen, uh, you got a minute. I just want you to meet somebody. And, you know, he's interrupting this interview. Right. And she's she's like, oh, OK. And in walks Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> So, and I'm sitting there looking up going, holy shit, what's going on here? So he, you know, and he comes in and says, hi, he's real nice. And then they leave, they go off. I guess he was thinking of sending his kids. I don't know if he ever did or not. But anyways, and it, in this interview, she says to me, she goes, uh, yes, it's important you understand that this, uh, that this school, you know, we're not competitive here. We're, everything we do is non-competitive. I was like, oh, well, I really needed the job. So I kind of played along with it. Uh, but no surprise, I didn't last long. I mean, I got you know tired of kids running, uh, you know, losing themselves underneath parachutes and things like that. It was just kind of you know wasn't my, truly my thing. But uh, anyway, so I moved on. But point is, is that yeah, results are super important. They you know that's what drives coaching. It just cannot be the only measure. Another way that we tend to act or tend to evaluate coaching is in the area of expertise. So if a, you know, a coach has a special expertise in one area that, you know, we tend to uh, equate that with good coaching. Um, and of course, coaches know that that's not always the case. And so, you know, that's, that's one area that you have to watch out for. They don't, those two don't always line up as we know. And, and, um, you know, Stu and I are going to talk about that in a number of podcasts. A third way, and I think this one, I, I don't think that one about expertise is necessarily a big problem, but the one I'm about to talk about, which is marketing, that I think it is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And when I say marketing, I'm talking about private outfits or schools that market themselves as elite, quote unquote. And, uh, you know, I'm really more concerned about the, you know, at the lower levels, um, you know, they, these, these enterprises that market themselves or, or even individual coaches and however they put themselves out there, they market themselves as elite. And, you know, when they really have no idea what elite really is, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast, what is elite? Um, I mean, God, you walk into some of these places and there's like five kids standing there and they all got runny noses. And the first one's got his fingers up his nose and the second one's got his fingers up his ass. And the third one's got his fingers, one up his nose and one up his ass. And the fourth one is, you know, alternating between the two. And the fifth one is like standing there going, what the fuck am I doing here? Like that's hardly elite. Sorry. And I'm not knocking the kids. Hell, I'll coach those five kids any day. No problem. But it's not elite. And I'm not knocking all private outfits or, you know, uh, uh, you know, training centers of that nature. I mean, you know, some of them are outstanding. They're amazing. And I, I send my kids to some of them. And, and some of them are really, really good. Some of them, like I know this one, there's a guy I met here in Chicago uh, through Altus, uh, Tommy Christian. I think it's called TC Boost. And anyways, I, I went up to his place. He's got this great outfit where he, you know, he, he helps all these, all these athletes in different sports get through the combine and all this kind of thing. And that he does a fantastic job. Um, but like I have a son that's in a sport 
and the the club is called uh, Elite. It's in the name, and you know it's anything but Elite. It's a developmental program, so you know there's it's kind of two 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 big issues I see with that. Number one is why are you calling yourself Elite if what you're doing is actually developmental work. And in the case of my son's sport, uh, they actually, it's a really good club. I'm really glad he's in it, but I don't just don't understand why they call themselves elite. And you may not think that that's a problem or some people may not think that that's a problem, but then think of it this way. This is the second issue is what if you call yourself elite and you actually are training them elite or in terms of being elite, that is a huge problem because as we're going to talk about, that's not really the approach that should be done at that level. And I think most people listening to this podcast are going to agree with that. Okay. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, um, that's a, that's a real big one. And it's, uh, it's one that kind of has always hit me sideways. I see it more here than I did at home, but, um, you know, it's just a, a it's just a way that people are selling themselves, I guess. The next one is the uh, impact on the greater good. And this is a good one, obviously. Okay, so we tend to evaluate coaches or assess coaches by, you know, what impact have they had on the communities around them? And I talked uh, at the beginning about this, at the beginning of this podcast about this. And now, obviously, this one is even more important than results, really. But the problem I have with it sometimes is when people talk about this building people or shaping people or shaping attitudes um, as if it was separate from uh, training, as if it was separate from the actual programming, you know, separating those two is kind of pointless because really to me, it's always, it's kind of like sports psychology to me. Sports psychology to me is, is mostly preparing athletes physically. If you prepare them physically, if you create a good environment, then they're going to be healthy. They're going to be, they're going to, you know, they're, that's 99% of it right there. And I think this is the same thing. If you build good environments and you build environments where young people can come and grow and thrive and be successful and develop self-esteem. Well, then you're building people. It's not, it's not about posting platitudes on the wall or branding yourself as, you know, the humanist coach or something like that. Uh, when that becomes more important than the actual physical environment or the preparation of the athlete, then I got a problem with it. And sometimes I, think that for some coaches it's uh you know they use that as an excuse to not um do their due diligence in terms of putting together programs and that may not be popular with some people but i have seen it and i've seen it quite often and there's probably other ways that we assess coaching of course that you can think of that i haven't and that's great but there is one other criteria for good coaching uh that we often overlook that I think is most important. And that is particularly at the youth development level. Okay. At the elite level, it's all about results uh, and high performance level. Um, but at the youth development level, we have to evaluate coaching in terms of physical preparation. 
And by that, I mean, what are the progressions, the nuts and bolts programming that these coaches are using in order to uh, get an athlete from uh, the beginning of or the introduction to formal training right through to college or, or uh, high performance training? Now, some might say, well, isn't that really results? Does it preparation equal or parallel results? Well, at the highest level of sport, it often does, at least close enough that we can say that there's a relationship between, between the two. Um, and in some sports and situations, it's strong, and in others, it's weak, but it's, it's there consistently. There are exceptions, of course, and reasons why coaches uh, will produce results at the highest levels consistently that have nothing to do with physical preparation. It's like recruiting uh, uh, the support teams that they have around them, uh, systemic advantages, drugs, or even, uh, you know, even, even the training environments, just to name a few. But on balance, it's pretty safe to say that while the relationship isn't as solid as many think, especially if you, if you're talking to coaches at the, at the highest levels, it's, it's at least there. You don't survive without results and you can't get results without managing preparation, at least somewhat competently, however that manifests itself. But at the lower levels of performance, the relationship between physical preparation and results is way murkier, way murkier. And it gets murkier the younger you go. And I think this is worth taking a closer look at. Now, we all know that you can have great results uh, without great or even good preparation. And in fact, we know that one can have incredible results with absolutely minimal preparation or, or worse, even bad preparation. And while that may not be consistent, it's very possible. I see it all the time. Um, and I'll probably be doing a podcast at some point on talent and we'll go more into this then. And as I just said, you know, this, this can happen at the highest levels, but it doesn't very often, or at least it isn't the norm. But far too often, it is the norm these days in youth sports and getting worse by the year. So I believe that when we're talking about coaching at the youth or lower performance levels, we have to evaluate preparation independently of results and not just simply assume like we do at the higher levels of performance uh, that, that one equals the other because they just don't. And it matters more here because if we make this assumption at the highest levels and we're wrong, well, that's not good, but the game's almost over at that point anyway. There's not much you can do about it other than changing the athlete from situation to situation. There's not that much time left. They've, they've been developed. But with youth, such an assumption might just impact someone's sporting future. You could ruin them if it's not done well. And in many cases, or maybe I should say places, this, that's a big, big deal. So we have to separate how we evaluate the two. And for the record, I'm not talking about preparation with a complete disregard for results. I'm talking about good developmental coaching. I'm talking about being okay with getting 95 or 98% of the way there, or maybe even 100 but knowing that the athlete has a future with half a fucking chance to go somewhere if they have the talent to do so. So what does this all mean? Well, let's start by understanding what we mean when we are putting titles on levels or types of coaching or classifying coaching. As I talked about in evil chat number two, 
personally, I like to categorize coaching expertise and practice into three levels. Keep it simple, three levels that really exist on a continuum from early development to elite. Those who have seen any of my development lectures or any of the sport parent videos know that I, I often use a timeline on graphics where the further to the left you go, the less specialized everything becomes until you get to childhood where everything is about play and random activity. And the further right you go on the continuum, the more things become about reduction, specializing, and having a very concentrated intent in terms of what is prescribed to the athlete until you get all the way to the right to a true elite performance where everything is about coaxing as much as you can out of the athletes remaining reserves. And as I often say, looking under rocks for solutions to increase performance. Now back at the other end, once an athlete starts participating in sport, they begin to get exposed to coaching. And then later around 12 to 14, depends on the sports, and we're talking about late entry sports here, not early entry sports. Early entry sports is something that I'll talk about another time. Um, but at that point, they're usually ready to begin formal training. And by this, by formal training, I mean they can start, start the process of breaking down uh, some things, quote unquote, and training them separately, as opposed to simply playing games and sports and letting those develop fitness on their own just through natural uh, play and sport activity. Stu uses the term reducing, uh, which is, I think, a way better term. So I'll use that reduction, reducing. That's breaking things down. So we reduce these things, which are called abilities or biomotor abilities, and then off to the races we go. Then from this point forward and until the athlete enters high performance training, say in the late teens, early 20s, I call this development or developmental coaching. Prior to this, this 12 to 14 year old period where they can start this formal training, uh, there's a very specific name for this highly special phase in an athlete's career. It's called childhood. And that phase is a whole discussion in and of itself that I'll leave for another time. So. We have our development phase on our continuum of classifying coaching or the path that an athlete might take throughout a long career in sport. So what comes after development? Well, it's what I call high performance. And the reason I say what I call high performance is because a lot of people uh, confuse or they equate high performance with elite. And to me, there's something uh, a little different. So when I say high performance, performance. I'm really talking about the period at the end of uh, development when and if it's gone well, the athlete is you know prepared and ready to take on what we call high performance training, where you start to look at these abilities. And even though you've started to break them down in development and you're but you're training them more in a preparatory sense, in high performance, you're targeting those and you're starting to exploit them to their maximum potential. This period typically goes through uh, late teens, early 20s, uh, or late development uh, to entry into elite, which would, you know, a lot of athletes, most athletes never even get there. But typically the high performance phase will be through the, you know, the late teens, early 20s, through college or university, and maybe they continue it for a few years after that. The nature of high performance uh, coaching 
or training in terms of how we evaluate it is, you know, really it's mostly on performance, uh, much more than it is uh, or should be than developmental coaching, of course. Uh, but it's also on whether or not an athlete that has a talent or had the talent to get there can make it to the make it to elite um, coaches in this area and in the u.s we're really talking about division one ncaa and not even all of those coaches but a, a lot many of them um, these coaches get evaluated on uh, performance first and uh, but less so on the second because let's face it, the people that are paying them don't really care if the athletes, once they're graduated, make it to a lead or not. And I guess that's just the way it is. Now, these coaches walk a fine line because they are often paid uh, professionally. Uh, well, they're all paid professionally if you're in the NCAA. And I'm just using that as an example. As an example. In other places, it's it's a it's different system, but. Um, and if they're paid, so, you know, results matter, but so does uh, getting athletes to elite, or at least it does to the, to the athlete. So uh, it's, and that's a particularly hard job for high performance coaches, you know, because they're still riding that line a little bit uh, a balancing between getting maximum results, but also making sure that the athlete has a, uh, we're going to talk about trainability in a sec, has enough trainability to get through to elite performance and, or stay healthy enough to get to elite performance. And, you know, that's a particularly hard job in the U.S. where after the NCAA, there's, there's little support for, uh, for athletes that, uh, that, uh, that have graduated. Now, of course, a lot of these coaches are a hybrid of elite and high performance. You're, they're not one or the other. They, they typically, you know, they wear both hats, Right. So uh, there's a lot of coaches that are in the NCAA, at least in my sport, that are both uh, high performance and elite. You know, they're high performance sort of in their day job. And then they're elite coaches with, you know, these athletes that come through their college or university program and go on to be, you know, uh, Olympic medalists, which qualifies you as an elite coach. And after high performance, in, at least in my mind, in my classification scheme, you have elite and when you're a true elite coach to be, that means that you are at the highest, highest levels of your sport. Depending upon the sport, there's probably only a handful of athletes that can compete with the athletes that you're producing uh, in the world. In my sport, it typically means, you know, you're probably in the top dozen or 16 athletes in the world, which means you're you're an Olympic or world champ semifinalist or better, you know, that's the level that we're talking about here. These are the top, top, top. And for these coaches, it's, it's all about results. Okay. And yes, of course they do all the other things that high performance coaches and development coaches do in terms of producing people and environments and all of that, but it is really all about results to them. And the gloves are right off. We'll talk about that, uh, um, in a second with them where they, it's all about producing medals or uh, championship wins at the highest level. And, uh, you know, you have few athletes typically and huge expectations and, you know, few exist only in this realm in terms of coaching, at least in my sport, you're, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very select uh, group of coaches. So then what, is the difference between developmental high performance and elite coaching in terms of what they do. Sure, they may exist on a continuum and be called different names, but what does that actually mean? What is the difference 
in terms of practice. What do they actually do differently or not do differently? Well, there's a lot to be said about this and way too much for the scope of this podcast, but I will get into it here and there. And, um, you know, I have things on the site. Um, you know, there's courses that are, that are coming that will teach you that. I have a couple of lectures on the site that will teach you that. Um, and when the sport parent course is finished, uh, the back end of that is going to be very much about this, at least in the developmental area. But generally speaking, this is the difference between developmental high performance and elite coaching. In developmental coaching, the rules are different. In many ways, developmental coaching is actually harder than elite coaching because in one sense, elite coaching, and, and I'm going to talk about the two ends and, you know, you can just fit high performance in there on the continuum. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a progression from one to the other. Um, in one sense, training elite athletes is actually quite simple. You, you take the available means and methods, uh, you know, the tools you have, which are themselves inside of a very, very small envelope in terms of activity that you have to choose from. And you apply it to an athlete who is almost always at a point in their careers where the only biological timeline that you have to worry about is in relation to either career peaking or retiring. And by that, I mean they've matured, or at least physically they've matured. In other words, as I said before, the gloves are off. You can exploit any ability necessary to get results. Everything's wide open. These coaches, their fight has fewer rules. The athletes and everyone else involved in their environment is fully committed to the sport and fully committed to the athlete uh, uh, succeeding and winning. Um, and they typically have all the support they need or, you know, it's always not the case with, with the lead athlete, but certainly they have, they typically have more support than what's needed, um, say with a developmental coach that's doing things volunteer and they're judged almost solely on results. That's it. So the whole equation is actually quite simple. Well, not all that simple because what makes elite coaching so Looks so simple is also what kills it in the end. Here's another way to look at it. At the highest levels, you simply have fewer places to look in terms of what is left to improve upon. In developmental coaching, you have far, far more places. And this is almost entirely due to something that we call trainability. Now, trainability at least the way I'm defining it here, is simply the athlete's reserve or store from which they can draw upon in order to improve. There's a fair amount to this in concept, but basically it works like this. The younger or less trained you are, the more trainability you have. So if we're talking about our, our continuum, um, the further to the left you go with children, you know, Everything makes them a better athlete or, you know, it's not even about being an athlete. When you, if you, you know, five-year-old walking up a set of stairs is strength training and coordination training. They're developing physically at a crazy rate. So just about everything that they do is making them stronger, faster, more coordinated. Life, play, and training, quote unquote, are all the same thing. It's just the kid just goes about their life and they, they're, they're getting bigger, stronger, faster all the time. Now, if you start going to the other end of the continuum, the older or more trained you are, the less trainability you have. 
the scope of means and methods that you have to draw upon for you to improve in whatever it is that you're doing, whatever sport or activity that you're doing, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You start to use it up until eventually you get to a point where overall improvement doesn't even continue. You're just really worried about hanging on to what you've got. And if you keep going, it's about losing less every year. And you know, at this level, I'm talking about masters and things like that, masters uh, training and, and competition. So in other words, the younger or less trainable the athlete is, the easier it is to produce results compared to older, more trained athletes because you have so much more at your disposal as a coach in order to uh, foster or create improvement and therefore results. Okay, so here's an analogy. Imagine you are a post-apocalypse survivor uh, who survived an attack from alien beings and these alien beings came down and they they took out everybody on earth uh, who had a, uh, let's see, a a Florida Georgia line or a Justin Bieber and let's see one more um, Miley Cyrus uh, download on their phones and they turn them all into tasteless, mindless uh, zombies. Well, I guess they already were tasteless anyways and mindless. Okay. So zombies and, uh, and, and they destroyed everything in their path. These zombies and little's left standing And out of the few hundred of you that are left, you and a few others decide that you're going to rebuild a new safe community, just like on the, uh, just like on the walking dead. And because you were listening to punk rock before you get tasked with leading the biggest job and that's rebuilding the community. Like you have to build all the homes and all the infrastructure and, you know, get everything that everybody needs in order to start their new lives. You got to do it from scratch and you got no idea how to do this. And you have a buddy and he's a jazz nut and he's put in charge of something that's way more specific, way more precise. And that's building a solar power grid for that community. Once the homes get built, they'll need to be powered. He's a super smart dude, but he has no experience in doing this either. But he listens to jazz, right? So everybody thinks that he's smart. So the first thing you need to do is set out to find everything you need to to build all of this stuff that you got to build. And let's say that luckily not far from where you're going to build this thing is this big box retailing mall that somehow survived this alien attack. And you know, the kind of place where all the good people who, who are now zombies used to roam and buy all that shit in their lives that made them like super annoying. And let's say that this place has everything that you need to to do the rebuild. It has like a big box home improvement store, a giant department store, a home furnishing store, garden center, uh, and let's say it even has a library. And all of this survived intact. But there's no employees or any experts there to help guide you or give you any kind of advice. So you're going to have to find everything yourself and you're going to have to figure out everything yourself by going to the library or searching through the stores and finding manuals and all of that. You're all totally on your own. But the good news is everything you need is in this place. So here's the analogy. The mall and everything in it represents the sum total of 
everything that's available to you as a coach in terms of means, which would be the materials and methods, uh, the information, and what you use and take from it depends upon what your specific needs are. The further to the left on our coaching continuum you are, the more you're like the punk rock lover in charge of the general rebuild. Almost everything in that mall is available to you and will help you achieve your goals. Building this project is going to be a, a stage process. So you're going to draw from most of everything that's in there, but not all at the same time. There's going to be stages to it. But at some point, you're going to draw from probably 90% of what's there. And achieving success is going to be relatively easy because the people that you're building this for at the beginning have nothing. So almost anything you do is going to be, you know, is going to lead to success. You can get a fair amount of it wrong and still achieve your goals. If you, if you find a huge stock of wood, the houses can be made out of wood. And if, and if all you find is brick, well, then it'll be brick. No one's really going to mind either way, as long as they get a, a roof over their heads. Their needs aren't terribly complicated. They need shelter, clothing, food. Uh, and, you know, you'll have plenty of information in the library and all kinds of different places to help you. There'll be books on construction, agriculture, cooking, health, weather, hunting. You know, the list is endless. But the further right to the continuum you go on our scale, the more your job is like the jazz guy's mission. Finding the materials and information you need in the mall to build your project is relatively simple because it's not, uh, you know, there's not a ton of it you need. But it's going to be very, very difficult because your task is very specific and only certain materials are going to suit your needs. And if you don't have those exact materials, you can't build your project. Therefore, you can't be successful. And that's after the buildings are all installed, then you're going to put the panels on top of the houses and you're going to, you're going to supply them all with electricity. So even both are considered builders. Their tasks and how they go about doing it are very, very different and the needs are very, very different. So they should be appreciated in different ways, but they're both super important. They're both essential. So what does all this got to do with defining coaching? Well, this idea of trainability is a huge factor when assessing a coach's coaching practice and associated results. Think about it. If high trainability equals a large scope of means and methods that can be used to grow form, then the choices of those means and methods a coach has available to improve those results is also large, like what the punk rock guy has to draw from. The younger or less trained they are, the more trainability they have, and the more just about any content or combination of content will work. This means that choices in terms of training prescription don't have to be so exact in terms of improvement. This is why multi-sport experience early on in an athlete's career is so effective. The more to the left on our continuum you go, the more just about anything will transfer. Athletes will get stronger, faster, and be able to endure more simply by doing nothing formal and letting nature take its course. And in fact, this is a big consideration when determining what training to prescribe a young athlete because we want to interfere with this natural growth as little as possible. Not by not training, but by choosing the appropriate types of training. Now, in the elite coach's case, everything is the opposite. The scope of means and methods that's out there that can drive results in the athlete 
is small and therefore their choices are small. So these coaches have to be very precise, very SWOT in their approach to selecting the content they'll use to form their training programs for those athletes. It's just like the jazz guy in our analogy. The more training experience or the less trainability their athletes have, the smaller the target they are aiming for in terms of creating transfer. Also, they don't have natural maturity to rely upon. In fact, sooner or later, they'll be fighting age. The other aspect of trainability is this. While it declines as athletes mature and train, it is also relatively sport or ability specific. You can have high trainability in one sport or ability and not so much in others. In other words, one can train fairly aggressively and not overtap their trainability reserves if they are performing the correct types of work. Proper development in terms of physical preparation does not have to mean not training or not doing any strength or endurance work. It simply means you have to do the right types of those activities. It means you have to do those types of activities that are preparatory in nature as opposed to specialized in nature, depending upon where you are with an athlete in their development. Imagine there's two athletes in their early 20s that arrive on a high performance or elite coach's doorstep ready to train. Both are huge equal talents. The first one has been training, quote unquote, for most of his or her life. However, most of this training has come from well-progressed activity, either in other sports or even largely in the sport of choice, but he or she did little specialized work aside from competitions. Maybe lots of skill work, but not a lot of specialized work. The athlete is fit and well-prepared, just not specialized in the sport in question. The second athlete has done almost little formal training. He or she is a super talent. And while they're coming to the sport late, they're worth taking a chance on, such as their talent. The athlete's almost completely raw, at least in the sense of having experienced any consistent structured training. Now, while both of these athletes may be a high performance or an elite coach's dream in terms of potential results, the first athlete is a preferred option because they can begin intensive specialized training almost immediately. The high performance coach has the best of both worlds in this athlete, physical preparation without specialized experience. The second athlete is going to be a more difficult proposition. The high performance coach wants to begin specialized training, but the athlete may not be prepared for it. This is a problem, albeit one that can be dealt with. And of course, the worst scenario for a high performance or elite coach to face would be the dreaded third potential option, a talented athlete who has been successful but got there using up all or most of his or her trainable reserves. That is, they were early specialized. The high performance coach has nowhere to go with them, even if they had huge results. There are few rocks left to look under. There may only be a few years of specialized reserve left in this athlete if they have been active in specialized activity throughout their developmental years. And that's if they got through it without injury, which is rare. Ah, uh, yes, injury. Specialized work is intensive. Such intensity is hard on the body, especially passive tissues like tendons, ligaments, and bone, which adapt to training slower than actual muscle fibers themselves. And when they go, 
they take a long time to heal because they are not fed physiologically the way muscle belly is. These types of injuries you want to avoid at all costs. Now, I should say one other thing here. Don't get specialization here confused with being specific. I'm not saying you should avoid the sport activity itself. Being specific, or in the developmental athlete's case, performing the sport activity is good. Skill is good. Lots of skill is good. Same with speed work, in particular acceleration work. Preparatory strength work is also good. In fact, it's essential if one is serious about their preparation. It just has to be progressed properly. So if as a development coach, you can prepare an athlete properly for future high performance and elite training by avoiding or progressing specialized activities and have them be successful, why not do it? If you buy into everything I'm saying here, then the picture of good developmental coaching starts to look a lot more, well, specialized. <laughs> At least in the coach's skill set, it does. And it's a skill set that is unique in coaching and so underappreciated because it is difficult. Think about it. You're trying to achieve this yin-yang balancing act of achieving results but not specializing them too soon and at the same time preparing them for what is to come down the road, all the while not getting them hurt or burned out. And here's the biggest kick in the crotch for coaches that do this well. You won't know you've done a good job until well after they've left you and gone on to high-performance training because your real talents as a coach won't become apparent until then. So sometimes doing a good job can be thankless and less rewarding in a material sense. So, therefore, I believe we need to redefine coaching at this level and use the following as criteria. Number one would be success. We have to always look at coaching performance in terms of what they're producing uh, over the long term and short term and all of that. That's, that's obvious. Number two would be injury history. If a coach is having a lot of success at the developmental level, that is the athletes are you know, uh, consistently pumping out performances and a lot of them are going on to you know, high performance coaching or college or elite coaching, but they're all hurt at the end of that, or they're all hurt at the beginning of that. And the high performance coach has to take, you know, even though they want the successful athlete, the athlete that's, that's performed well, but they have to take two years, the first two years of that athlete coming to their school and dealing with uh, a chronic injury history, then to me, the developmental coach hasn't done their job. Simple as that. And there's two sides to this coin as well. Not only does a developmental coach want to create success within their groups and keep their athletes healthy while doing that, they also want to prepare the athletes so that when they enter high-performance training later, they're robust and prepared and able to take on the specialized loads that are coming. Therefore, they are preparing them or bulletproofing them from potential future injury. And then lastly, the last criteria is this idea of the retention of trainability. And to me, this is the real measure of a good developmental coach and the one that they'll get the least thanks for. 
simply because it's something that a lot of people don't even consider. But this is what makes a great developmental coach. This is the art form in it, as far as I see it. Now, the challenge in all of this is that when you take a look at these three criteria, you immediately see that number one competes against number two and three. And in particular, there's two things that they compete for in a developmental coach's world. And the first is their limited time and energy, of course. If, you know, if you're simply coaching athletes the way that you were coached and you're not putting much thought into it or much study, then you know, that's a 50-50 you know, chance that you're probably doing it right at best. But trying to create a balance between uh, being successful in terms of results and preparing athletes properly for future performance down the road is a, you know, it's a relatively difficult thing to do and it takes time and it takes energy and not every volunteer coach has that. The second area where uh, being successful competes against the other two criteria is in ego needs. Now, we all want to be successful to some degree and often this means winning. And that's totally natural and great and I'm, I'm right up there with the best of them in that. But the further to the left we go on our scale of coaching expertise, the more difficult this is to resolve with the need to prepare. For elite coaches, this whole thing is its completely irrelevant and it's very simple. You, they, you win. That's it. Not much else matters, so the path is clear. Make use of everything that's available to you within the rules to succeed. But for development coaches, the good ones anyways, they have a constant conflict between these two competing tendencies, success versus preparation. And so in some ways, a lot more thought has to be put into how you prepare athletes. And uh, you have to plan and you have to make sure that you are prescribing the right types of activities at the right times. But if you do it right, you're going to produce athletes that are going to be so much more effective and useful down the road. Uh, I truly believe that. So the obvious question is, well, how do you do that? Well, you know, that's for another podcast. Uh, that's for another time. And there's, that's a, it's a huge discussion within all of the various uh, abilities. But I will say this, you know, speed and skill um, have to be paramount in these, in these, in these developmental programs, because those are really the ones that need to be developed early on. And those are the ones that are so easily impacted by the overdevelopment of the other abilities, such as endurance or strength, or maybe not so much flexibility, but uh, particularly endurance and strength, because those two are so trainable and it's, it's just so easy to get results by really uh, hammering in on those two alone. So, so there you go. That's my podcast on how we should be defining uh, coaching at the various levels and in particular development coaching. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I put a lot of thought into this and uh, yeah, yeah. So that's it. So I'd, I'd love to hear your comments on it. Let me know what you think. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's Derek, uh, Derek here. I'm going to sign out and you know, the next podcast coming up is going to be my second chat with Stu McMillan, which is, uh, which is a really, really good one. All right. Take care.